On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Chapter 4, I'll be reading once again verses 11 through 16. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, 16, beginning now in verse 11, the apostle writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, it's been seven weeks ago that we started the, the practical section of Ephesians, which, run, which runs from chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 20. And the first two verses in chapter 4, uh, in which Paul implored us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as you'll remember, set the stage for all of the exhortations from verse 3 of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. And in these verses, Paul is instructing us, instructing us on how to actually live out the Christian life how to live out the Christian life in in the church, in our marriages and homes, and in other various relationships within the community. And for six weeks, we've been looking at verses 3 through 16 and Paul's first practical exhortation in verse 3 for believers to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in verse 6, he laid out the basis of our unity. And then in verses 7 to 10, he showed us that within this unity, there is a diversity of spiritual gifts among the members of the church that contributes to the overall unity and growth of the body. And then in verse 11, Paul spoke of Christ giving uh, not gifts, but gifted men to the church for the sole purpose of equipping the saints. I mean, all, all, all believers, in other words, to exercise their individual gifts for the work of service, for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. And all of this is directed toward the goal of doctrinal unity, as well as an ever-deepening personal experiential knowledge of Christ. Secondly, spiritual maturity. And thirdly, that we might come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, Christ-likeness. That's the goal. Paul sums it all up in verse 15 when he says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. God's ultimate purpose for us together in the church is Christ-like maturity individually and then as a church. 
And last week we began looking at verses 14 to 16, the last three verses of this section and the climax of Paul's first exhortation concerning this unity in the church. And in these last three verses, Paul tells us the result of the ministry of the Word of God in equipping the saints to serve the Lord and others so the church grows in spiritual unity and the maturity in Christ's likeness. First in verse 14, which we looked at last week, is doctrinal stability. And so Paul says, Paul says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In stark contrast to the mature man of verse 13, Paul told us in verse 14 that we're no longer to be children, referring to spiritually immature believers. And spiritually immature believers, as we learned last week, lack discernment. And they're unable to really discern good teaching from bad. They, they tend to be attracted by anything that makes them feel good. They act impulsively. They, they live by feelings and emotions rather than living by faith. They lack biblical knowledge. They, they are uh, ignorant of sound doctrine. Therefore, they're easily deceived. They're, they're gullible, often inviting false doctrine into their lives through the books they read, the, the things they watch and listen to, and the result of this is disaster. The spiritually immature also have a very short attention span. They get bored easily with the, with the things of God and the gospel, and they're always looking for something new, always looking for, for something sensational. As physical children, immature believers are, are often very selfish. They're, they're mainly interested in themselves, their own blessing, their own interests, things that, that help them. They also think they know more than they actually know. I mean, these are some of the characteristics of the spiritually immature, but Paul says that we're no longer to be this way. We're no longer to be children, and this is extremely important so that we're not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine which is a reference to false doctrine. And so Paul painted a vivid picture there in verse 14 to impress upon us how vulnerable and unstable spiritually immature believers can be. And he likens the spiritually immature to, to ships that are just being tossed around in a, in a stormy sea, or, or maybe perhaps a cork. You know, they're at the, at the mercy of the waves and the wind. They're just blown this way and then that way, back and forth and, and up and down, carried one direction and then the next minute being carried in another with no anchor to keep them safe and secure. So in other words, they're all over the place. You know, following this person and that person, buying into this teaching and to that teaching. And their beliefs change every time they hear something new. They're, they're moved by every new doctrine, every religious fad that, that comes along and blows through the church, especially if lots of people are buying into it and it seems like the thing to do. This kind of doctrinal instability is evidence of immaturity because immaturity and doctrinal instability always go together. Spiritually immature and unstable believers are always prey for, for false doctrine that is presented as truth by false teachers who, Paul says, use human cunning. It means deceit. They use deceit to promote their teaching without being suspected. They do this by craftiness, which refers to the unscrupulous and deceitful ways false teachers cleverly manipulate and twist the truth. 
And this they do, Paul says, by deceitful schemes, which indicates that there is a deliberate plan. False teachers deliberately use trickery, cunning, deceitful schemes to make their false teaching look like truth, to deceive immature believers in order that they might draw them in. There will always be men and women who are deliberately deceitful preachers and teachers who will present themselves under the guise of faithful ministers of the gospel, but whose main goal is to fleece the flock of God for their own personal glory, power, and wealth. But of course, when we're born again through the Spirit in Jesus, or through faith in Jesus, we we all begin as spiritual babes. We all begin as spiritual infants who are immature in the faith and who need to grow up spiritually. We all begin that way. And and then we begin to grow and, and some are further along than others. But none of us are ever going to reach full maturity in this life. So we all need to to continue to grow up spiritually, but of course this doesn't happen by osmosis. We grow and mature by continually over a long period of time sitting under the intensive, faithful exposition of God's Word. Study, meditation, application, and obedience to the Word of God develop in us the ability to see clearly, to distinguish between what is true and what is false, and also between what is good and what is really best. Then we're not going to be deceived by false teaching. But remember this, it is study, meditation, application, and obedience. Without obedience, there will be no growth. A lack of obedience manifests the fact that you've not really learned anything. That all you've done is merely acquire more knowledge, which Paul says only puffs up. And worse, a lack of obedience manifests a lack of love for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But the point is, we must live by the Word of God so that we grow strong and mature in our faith. And so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes, Christ has given gifted men to the church to faithfully teach and preach God's word, equipping the saints for service, so that through the active involvement and service of every member, the church will grow up to maturity and as a result be marked by doctrinal purity and stability able to discern those who hold false doctrine and and refuse to be turned away from the truth. The mature church will be growing in Christ-likeness. Again, never fully arriving at it in this life, but never being content with how far it's grown. The mature church is committed to the truth of God's revealed word and ever seeking to grow in the experiential knowledge of Christ. And so the first result of Christ giving gifted men to the church to equip saints for the work of service is so that we is doctrinal stability, so that we may no longer be children. And now in verse 15, where we pick up uh, where we left off last week, Paul gives us a second result, a second characteristic, if you will, of the mature Christian. And that is a loving lifestyle. Look at verse 15. Rather, Paul says, speaking the truth in love. 
And so in contrast to the cunning, craftiness, and deceit that are natural to a fallen world and are hallmarks of false teachers, believers are to speak the truth in love. And this principle applies to every aspect of Christian life and ministry. Speaking the truth in love. And actually, the translation, speaking the truth in love, is literally truthing in love. Truthing in love. And perhaps the best translation might be manifesting the truth in love. And this, of course, includes speaking it and teaching it, but it's not merely speaking it, it's also living it and doing the truth. We are to walk in the truth and in love. But I think in this context, Paul is primarily dealing with the idea of speaking or confessing the truth. And he is reminding us that speaking the truth in love is the overflow of a life lived under the ministry of the Word of God, a life as one man said, that has been invaded, captured, and captivated by God's love and truth in Christ. Speaking the truth, he says. And it's hard to know what Paul means by truth. And is he referring to the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints? In other words, the essential truths of of the Christian faith, the truths of the gospel. Or is he referring to the Christian's obligation to always speak truthfully, come what may? Well, I don't know that we have to make a choice between the two because they both should be true of a believer. We should be speaking the truth of the gospel in love and in everything we say, we should be speaking truthfully in love. It's never okay to lie. It's never okay to deceive. In everything we say, we should be speaking truthfully in love. And so whether we are speaking gospel truth or the truth in general, Paul tells us we should always do so in love. And the word love that Paul uses here is the word agape. And as you know, it's the highest form of love. It's the love that God is. It is not a feeling or an emotion. It's an action. It is a love that acts. It's a commitment to seek the highest good of the one loved. It's a love that that does not take selfish advantage of others, but rather sacrifices self for the good of others. No matter how difficult and inconvenient it may be, it, it it is this love that separates Christ's own from the world. It is this love that makes us different, sets us apart from the world. And this love is to be the very atmosphere that permeates the church as we grow in Christ. In fact, the phrase, in love, occurs six times in Ephesians, more than in any other New Testament epistle. And this key phrase, in love, begins and ends this paragraph on unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. So it acts uh, like bookends. In verse 2, we're told to bear with one another in love. Here, we're told to speak the truth in love. In verse, four, six, in verse 16, Paul will say that when everybody, every believer does their part, the body builds itself up in love. And so love describes the sphere of, of the Christian life and spells out the way that, that all ministry, all service, all life is to be done. You see, God is never pleased when we merely speak the truth. He is concerned with how we speak the truth. 
He is concerned that we do so with love. And truth and love are never mutually exclusive. In fact, they belong together because they are found together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth and love together are a sure sign of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Now on our own, we can often have one or the other. You know, truth without love, which is not Christian truth. Or love without truth, which is not Christian love. But when we have truth with love, when we are truthing in love, God is living through us as he grows us into maturity and Christ-likeness. So spiritual maturity involves speaking the truth in love. But what does that mean? What does it mean to speak the truth in love? And I think this is uh, an issue we need to talk about because these words have been so taken out of context. These words are often used as an excuse to tell someone an upsetting or uncomfortable so-called truth about themselves. Oh, I need to tell you this in love becomes nothing more than a pious excuse for saying something mean or inconsiderate to another person. It just becomes an excuse to give someone a piece of your mind just to vent on them, if you will. But as the book of Proverbs says in 20, verse 29, or chapter 29, verse 11, it's a fool who gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And so speaking the truth in love is not an excuse to blast someone in the name of love or truth. And a Christian is never entitled to act or speak in an unchristlike way. You know, some in the church are are fairly good at speaking the truth. But they forget to be loving. And they probably think of themselves as, you know, being very discerning and very mature. But in reality, they're being nothing but self-righteous jerks or something less flattering. they They can spot the smallest inaccuracy, you know, in, in someone's theology or practice. They don't have any fear of pointing it out. But in their zeal for the truth, they hurt and crush others by failing to show them love in the process of correcting them. Others have the opposite problem. You know, they're good at being loving, but they don't have the fortitude to be truthful with others if the truth is painful. And so they refuse to speak out against sexual sin or pride or or selfishness or materialism or greed or, or they let false teaching go unchallenged and let lies go uncorrected because they don't want to be unloving. And they think they're being loving and Christ-like, but in reality they're being cowards and wimps or worse. You see, God doesn't want us to be abrasive, nor does he want us to be timid. He wants us to show both strength and love. And listen, love does not mean just being nice. And that's what love has been reduced down to in our culture, being nice. Only in our culture, being nice is in the sense of just letting everyone do what they want to do, say what they want to say, and that's what's really loving. But that's not love at all. That's, that's, that's not even remotely close to what love is. 
Love does not mean that we smile at everything and tolerate it as if nothing matters as long as we're all being loving. We must all realize that biblical love is not sentimental and weak and tolerant of sin and error. I mean, whatever else it may mean, speaking the truth in love doesn't mean some kind of vague, flabby, you know, sentimental notion of niceness and tolerance. The biblical love is strong and true and pure. And Paul describes it for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, where he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. In other words, always gives people the benefit of the doubt. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. To love a person truly is to desire the very best possible for that person. And that means loving them enough to do something that at times may not be very pleasant for for you or for them. Because it means telling them hard truths. It may mean reproof, rebuke, correction for those who persist in sin. But it's doing so in love, real Christian love. And that means not doing it in a rude, cold, prideful, arrogant you know, detached, self-righteous, condescending way, giving the impression that your concern is to prove that you're right and everyone else is wrong. Instead, it means doing so with genuine, loving concern for the well-being of another person. It means being patient and kind, tender-hearted. And as Paul counseled, uh, to Timothy, to correct, his, to correct his gospel opponents, is to be done with gentleness. You know, as Paul said to the Galatians, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You know, so take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's. And then how do you take the speck out of your own eye? How do you try to take anything out of your own eye? Let me tell you how. You do it very carefully, very tenderly, because it hurts. And that's the way that we're to deal with other people. Very tenderly, very gently. Because what we have to say to them may hurt. You know, speaking the the truth in love is illustrated perfectly in Galatians chapter 4. And you're familiar with that letter. We went through it not long ago. In that letter, Paul severely rebuked and reprimanded the Galatians. And then in chapter 4, he he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Or another translation says, Am I now your enemy because I tell you the truth? Because he told them the truth that the childish Galatians 
might have felt that he had become their enemy and that he was a, a hateful person who hated them. But Paul assured them just a few verses later that he had nothing but love for them. He said in Galatians 4.19, My little children, that's a term of endearment, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I mean, Paul loved them as a mother loves her children. And it was because he loved them and cared very much for their eternal souls that he wrote so strongly against the particular heresy that had come into the church and had bewitched them. I mean, they were headed off course. And Paul hated the error. But he loved them. But because they didn't see the error, Paul had to write very strongly, just as uh, for the sake of truth, Paul also had to withstand the Apostle Peter to his face because he was playing the hypocrite. It was all for the sake of truth, but Paul did it in love, as a mother loves her children. And so he won Peter and the Galatians back to it. I mean, I suppose you could call it tough love, right? I mean, even unbelievers in our culture understand that there is something called tough love. And you know what tough love is? It's actually loving someone enough to do something that's not very pleasant for you or for them. It means telling them hard truths, but doing so in love. And so we're to speak the truth in love, being patient, kind, sensitive and and how we talk to others. Our motive should always be to restore someone and and to build them up in the faith. That's how we're to relate to believers. And you know, uh, sad but so, it doesn't matter sometimes how gentle and tender you are, how loving you are. A lot of times people are just going to respond in the wrong way. Because people don't want to accept the fact that maybe there's sin in their life. And there's so much pride and and spiritual arrogance in in many believers. So no matter how loving and tender you are, they may reject it and accuse you of being judgmental. That's their problem. We're also to speak the truth of the gospel in love to unbelievers. Why? Well, because we should show compassion to those who are lost and alienated from Christ. Our heart's motive should be to win them, and cr- win them to Christ, not drive them away because we're just a bunch of jerks who are so abrasive and offensive. Listen, the gospel is, is an offense itself. The preaching of the cross is, is foolishness and a stumbling block to the unbeliever. So we need to make sure that when we present the gospel, we're we're doing so in love. With compassion for these people. Look, they're they're blind. They're dead spiritually. They're on their way to eternal hell and they don't even know it. Our heart's motive should always be to win them to Christ. It doesn't mean compromising the truth or watering it down to make it more palatable. That's not love either. 
We have to speak the truth of the gospel with love and compassion. Look upon them as Jesus did. He wept over the lost. And of course, again, it doesn't matter how loving and caring and compassionate you may be in sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, uh, because the gospel is an offense, because the cross is foolishness and uh, so forth. I mean, you may be accused of being intolerant, hateful, bigoted, judgmental, being a racist, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're still to speak the truth lovingly to one another, exhorting those who are going astray, persisting in sin, correcting error without arrogance, to restore such a one to an intimate discipleship with Christ, and we're to explain the truth of the gospel to unbelievers with a heart to lead them to a personal knowledge of and an intimate relationship with Christ. And you know, pastors often, I mean, the most loving thing any pastor can do for his church is to give himself, first of all, to what he's called to do. What is that? Give himself to the study of the Word of God and prayer so that when he stands up on Sunday morning, he actually has something to say. He's not going to just stand up and say something. He will actually have something to say from the Word of God. And, you know, I mean, as Paul told Timothy, preach the Word. You know, be ready in season, out of season, To do what? In your preaching to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, you know, often in the preaching of the word, there there is reproof, there, there is rebuke, there's exhortation, there's also encouragement. And and oftentimes when you especially in in calling people to obedience, which I mean the newest Christian ought to know that you're supposed to live in obedience to the Word of God. Yet how many times do people get ruffled, get upset? Because the pastor's, his message was had some reproof and rebuke and correction. And oh, he's just hateful. Oh, he's harsh. He's unloving, uncaring. He's legalistic. And nothing could be further. Oh, sure, are there guys like that? Sure. Most of the time, it has nothing to do with that. They just don't like what's being said because it hit them where it hurts. Like Spurgeon said, when you throw a stick into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps the loudest is the one that got hit. I love Spurgeon. Speaking the truth in love is extremely important. Because there is a tendency among some Christians to hold the truth and to defend it in ways that are anything but loving. One man said, Thank God that there are those in in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But they sometimes are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They're determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. 
Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, which should not be difficult for spirit-filled believers, since the Holy Spirit himself is the spirit of truth, and his first fruit is what? Love. Fruit of the Spirit is, first one, love. You see, the truth of the gospel needs to be proclaimed and upheld within the body of Christ, and it needs to be proclaimed to a lost and dying world, but it needs to be done in love. You know, children, the the immature, they don't know how to balance truth and love. They think that if you love someone, you need to shield them from the truth if knowing the truth is going to hurt them. Often the same with the spiritually immature. But it's a mark of maturity. When we're able to speak the truth to one another and do it in love. I mean, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Speaking the truth in love isn't always easy. It's never convenient or pleasant. But it's absolutely necessary if the church is going to do Christ's work in the world. I mean, think of the trouble we would spare ourselves if we followed this practice, particularly in the church. Especially in the church. So if you have a problem with another believer, don't go to someone else. Don't go to someone else with it. Go directly to that person and then speak the truth in love. Act like spiritually mature adults and speak the truth in love. You know, truth and love together express the balance of the mature Christian and, and, and leads to growth in a church fellowship. And so what Paul is calling for is a balanced combination of the two, speaking the truth and doing so in love. You know, I pray that people would say this about our church. They teach the Bible faithfully. But I hope they also say they love each other like family and their neighbors as themselves. And even if people don't agree with our doctrine, I pray that they will see that we love one another and love them. So let me ask you, are you known for truth and love personally? Are you known for truth and love personally? And is our church known for truth and love corporately? Things to think about. And now in the rest of verse 15 and 16, Paul kind of really goes back as if to summarize it all. And in doing so, we see in verse 16 a final mark of the mature Christian. And that is, he faithfully fulfills his Christ-given function within the body of Christ, thus contributing his part to the overall growth of that body. Paul begins, first of all, by saying, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
In chapter 1, Paul has already referred to Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, emphasizing uh, the fact of Christ's headship over the church, which of course means that as head, he rules or, or governs his church. But there's more to it than that. The head controls the whole organism. I mean, life and direction and energy come from the head. And the purpose of the body is to serve the head and to be at the head's disposal. To serve Christ, we need to become mature. We need to take on the the character of the head. And the head is absolutely necessary to the life of the body. I mean, look, you can lose an arm, a leg, a foot, and, and still live, but severed from the head? Guess what? The body dies. Of course, this would bring to mind Jesus' teaching in John chapter 15 where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That is such a great picture of the Christian life, both for us as individuals and as a church. We grow and mature as we are joined to Jesus and as His life then flows in us. But when, when the branch is, is, is severed, when the branch is severed from the vine, the process of death begins. And the branch may, may look alright for a while, but death is, is inevitable. Because the branch depends on the life of the vine. And this is true of us individually. The only way for us to maintain our spiritual health and and to grow is to be vitally connected to the head, Jesus Christ, just as a branch is to the vine. And this is why each and every one of us must open our minds and our hearts every single day to God's Word. I mean, this is why we must pray. This is why it makes such a difference if we come to church and turn our hearts and our minds and our worship away from the world and everything else and toward God and and renew our faith in Him. And this is the only way to thrive spiritually and, and even to survive in the faith. Because we depend on the spiritual life that comes from Jesus. He is the vine. We are His branches. The same is true of the church. When a church faithfully, consistently preaches and teaches the Word of God and proclaims the Gospel, then there is growth in a process of maturity because we gain life and strength from Christ. But when the church gets distracted by a desire to be accepted by the culture or by you know, programs or, or, or for entertainment or by political issues or, or social activism, As one man said, a process of death sets in because Christ has been forgotten and we are not abiding in Him as our first priority. This, he said, is why a faithful gospel ministry ministry focused on Christ is not flashy or impressive to the eye, yet it yields the fruit of healthy spiritual growth because from Christ comes life and power and strength for godly things. The Lord Jesus is not only the the source of our life and blessing, but He defines the goal to which we are growing. 
Look back at verse 15. It says that we are to grow up, what? Into Christ. Into Christ in every way. Grow up into Christ. Now how in the world can the body grow up into its head? What's he talking about? Well, he's not saying we are literally growing up into the head. We are growing up to be more and more like the head. We're growing up to be more and more like Christ. And so we're to grow up to be more and more like Christ in every aspect of our lives, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, morally. God intends for us to become like Christ in every way and in every area of our life. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 8.29 that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. But this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the growth of the body has Christ as its goal. It's a lifelong process. But he's the one into whom we are to grow. And and as we become more and more like our Lord, as we draw closer and closer to Christ, becoming more like him, we at the same time are going to be drawing closer and closer to one another within the body. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the head. Therefore, he's the one who leads the church and nourishes it by supplying everything needed for growth. From him, the whole body is is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. The phrase every joint most likely uh, is a metaphor for all believers. So verse 16 goes full circle back to verse 7 where Paul taught that every believer has been given a spiritual gift along with enabling grace to use it in service to the Lord and to one another. And so we could say then that Christ has equipped the body with, with every joint Uh, with with every believer needed, with every person and every spiritual gift necessary for it to function properly. So as Paul says back in verse 16, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. That is, when each individual believer is working properly, in other words, when he or she is doing their part, it makes the body grow. In other words, the the growth of the body of Christ is in proportion to the working or the proper functioning of each individual believer. One commentator put it this way, the thought is that each Christian is a point of supply for the body of Christ, a channel to receive and pass on life from Christ. One modern translation, today's English version, really uh, catches the thought and expresses the entire thought clearly. It says, under Christ's control, all the different parts of the body fit together, and the whole body is held together by every joint with which it is provided. So when each separate part works as it should, the whole body grows and builds itself up through love. 
when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. So what does this mean for us? What does that mean? Well, it means that we all affect one another. And we are all vitally important. We all, we, we all uh, vitally matter. And so we should ask ourselves, what kind of church are we going to be? What are people going to experience when they walk into our church? What kind of spiritual life will our children experience as they grow up in the church? You know, many, if not the majority of people in churches today think that this all depends on the pastor and the elders. But according to the Bible, According to Paul here in our text, it depends on us all. That means you personally determine what kind of church that we will be. And this is made abundantly clear from the metaphor of the church as a body. Paul always emphasizes the importance of each part. A body needs more than just a mouth and eyes. It needs legs and feet and and carrying arms and hands and listening ears. In other words, Paul is telling us here that we have a deep obligation uh, to Christ and to one another. Everyone must do his or her part. Each one has a calling to make the body work. But this absolutely runs against the grain of Western culture with its emphasis on personal autonomy and, and even against much of evangelicalism today with its emphasis on a personal relationship with Christ. And as vitally important as a personal relationship with Jesus is, biblical Christianity never teaches that faith is just about Jesus and me. It's not just about Jesus and you. I know it's a country western song. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. But it's not just about Jesus and you. It's not just about Jesus and me. We're part of, we're part of something big. I mean, it's Uh, We we are part of the body of Christ. And we are His presence now on earth as His Spirit lives within us and among us. I mean, you and I are the expression of Christ's love to others and they to us. Spiritual growth and maturity that flow from the head Christ doesn't happen automatically. Growth and maturity only happens when each part is working properly or when every part does its share. The risen, ascended Christ has given each of you a spiritual gift along with the enabling grace to use it for service in the body of Christ. So you don't have to be somebody else. Just be who God made you to be with the gifts that Christ has has given to the church through you. Those gifts weren't given to you for yourself. Our gifts were given to us for the church. And as you use that gift, as you mature and grow, guess what? So does the church. But this works the other way as well. Just as each of us help build up the church, we can each harm the church and cause it much pain. 
And anyone who's ever had a, a splinter in a finger or toe knows this, knows how this is. Well, in the same way, those in the church who do not use their gifts in service to Christ, they hurt the church. They hurt the church. The whole church suffers for it. Because it's missing a vital part and what that part brings to the body. Without, ever, with, without every person doing their part, the church will survive. But it will limp along. It won't function properly. It won't be as healthy and mature as it should be because you've got a church full of immature people who all they want to do is be a spectator. And that drains the life out of the church. Without every person doing their part, the church will survive, but it won't be healthy. It won't function properly. And what is most disturbing is that many people don't seem to care. And the question I would ask is, why? Why is that? Why is it that people don't care about the church of God? Why is it that people can uh, just openly defy the king of heaven. Why is that? All Christians have a responsibility to do their utmost with the gifts and capabilities given to them by the risen Lord to help build up the body of Christ, his church, which is also his beloved bride. His bride. As one man said, Christ makes us one and obligates us to work together so that we can use our different gifts to build his church. In this task, all gifts are needed and everyone must do his or her part. We must never rule ourselves out of the process of building the church that is Christ transforming for this earth and for the eternity of multitudes that he is drawing to himself. We grow and mature as each one does his or her part. There are to be no spectators in the church, just as there are no unnecessary joints and ligaments in the body. Everyone is needed. Everyone has a gift and a significant part to play in the church's growth in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. And so this means the most important thing that you can do for Christ's church is to grow in spiritual maturity. Take a look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Take a look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. You know, commit yourself to spiritual growth through God's Word, through worship, through prayer, and the work of service. And as you mature in Christ, you will help us all to fit together and be close-knit so that Christ's ministry to us will not be hampered and we will all grow because as Paul says in verse 16, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so what? So that it builds itself up in love. It's very important to note the phrase in love in verse 6. It goes all the way back to the key mention of in love at the very opening of this section in verse 2. I mean, Paul draws on the theme of Christian love throughout this, this epistle. 
because he recognizes that love as a central characteristic of God and of Christ is therefore an essential characteristic of those who are united to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13.13, Paul spoke of faith, hope, and love and says the greatest of these is love. Paul called love the greatest thing. And what does he do here? He finishes his teaching on the unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness of the church by talking about love. And so the whole point is that we would become like Christ in His love and that we would come to know together what His love is like. The church functions because we are all called to be love contributors, not just love consumers. In every body of believers, every local church that Christ will ever call us to does not exist merely to serve us, but to be served by us out of mutual love. You know, whether you think so or not, we need each other's love. We are here together because Christ has made us one. He has made us one so that our gifts will lovingly complement each other and together we can grow to maturity in Christ both in what we understand and in what we do. But this is only going to happen when every part is working properly. I mean, it's only when every part is working properly that this healthy growth takes place. Where there is consistent preaching and nourishing ministry of the Word, it will happen. I mean, almost like a child growing to maturity in his or her own body, uh, which seems to grow itself, the body will build itself up in love. However, as one man observed, often our churches do not seem to be growing. Stunted fellowship is almost always caused by a lack of either truth or love. Sadly, sometimes both. Where the central ministries of the word are lacking, the knowledge of the truth will be diminished and the ability to mature impoverished. Where there is no thoroughgoing submission to the word, in other words, where there is no obedience to the word of God, love will be lacking and any growth will be misshapen and unlike Christ. But then he said, where under the ministry of the word, Truth and love go hand in hand. Growth is assured and grace prevails. So there has to be both the the faithful, consistent preaching and teaching of God's word and also on the part of of, of everyone in the church, including the pastor, there has to be an ongoing uh, submission to the word, an ongoing obedience in our lives. Without both of those things, it's not going to happen. A mature church is where everybody is doing their part and being built up so that the body of Christ looks a little more like the Lord Jesus Christ and manifests his love. That's how the church is supposed to be in the world. That's the pattern for the church. 
And that has to be the goal, and any other goal needs to be just absolutely thrown out. In this section, verses 1 through 16, 3 through 16, Paul has emphasized the church's unity and spirit, its diversity and spiritual gifts, attaining doctrinal unity, maturity and Christ-likeness, all within this unity of the church. And it should always challenge us. And it should always humble us. That as our Lord Jesus faced the unimaginable death on the cross, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, he prayed this to his Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You know what this means? This means that indifference to the church's visible unity in the world is to live in defiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also means that refusing to give yourself heart and soul to serving in the church to the end of building it up in love is to live in defiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder how people can be indifferent to the church's visible unity, refusing to give themselves heart and soul to serving the church, can in any way, shape, or form consider themselves to be mature believers. Because these are nothing but marks of immaturity. Or worse. Loved ones, the church is one church. And so let's do all we can to manifest that. The church, I mean, Christ's body, Christ's bride, is made up of many members. And so let's be the the healthy members that enable the body to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. I have just two questions to ask you as we come to the end of this study. The first is this. Are you in the body of Christ? Are you in the body of Christ? I didn't ask if you belonged to a certain denomination or a certain church. I asked if you were in the body of Christ. And by that, I am asking you if you have ever trusted in Christ alone as your only hope of salvation. You know, have you received eternal life by trusting that He died in your place, that He suffered your punishment? Are you trusting in that and the fact that he rose from the dead? 
Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? If so, then you've been born again by personal faith in Christ, and you are, in fact, a member of his church, the body of Christ. And having asked this, I now want to ask, are you an active and vital part of this church? Or if you're visiting with us this morning, are you you an active and vital part of your own local church? Because the Word of God knows absolutely nothing of anyone coming to faith in Christ and not becoming part of a local church and then finding their place of service in that body. Every believer should seek to find his or her place of service. Every believer should seek not only their own growth and maturity, but that of the church at large as well. So are you in the body of Christ by faith in Him? And are you actively involved in the body of Christ? And are you serving the body, playing out your role, and thus contributing to the growth and the maturity of the body for the glory of God? Oh, I pray that you are. And I pray that you are for two reasons. Because first of all, this is what our text demands of each and every Christian. So again, these are not suggestions for you to consider. These are commands from the high king of heaven to his subjects below, you and I. And secondly, I pray that you are because that's the way this church will grow to unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. That is the way that his kingdom rule will be extended through us so that the world will actually get a glimpse, however imperfect, of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. i